Hi, and welcome to Recovery Internet Radio and our show, Straight Stuff on Addictions. Tonight, our tag is Addiction Treatment and International Perspective. Um, I'd like to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Nyang. And uh, how are you this evening, Elizabeth? Well, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm glad to hear it, and thanks for um, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I was I I know we had talked a little bit uh, beforehand, and you told me that you you were a listener that you tuned into the show. Yes, I do. And that's great. I love that. I it was. It's always great for us to hear that because we don't always know where our listeners are coming from. So, and we know you're not. Now we know where you are. You're in Maryland. Yep, so, I'm in Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me just ask you. We'll just we'll just get going here. I I'm I'm interested uh, I'm interested to know uh, a little bit about what about what you do. I know you're a private practice person and you also work for the county. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, um, I can give you just like a little bit of history about me. Sure. Um, I worked in the um, public sector for 23 years, and my first master's degree was in library and information systems. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of volunteer work with at-risk youth and decided that when I retired, I wanted to go back to school and um, change careers. Mm-hmm. So I started um, planning, and um, two years before I retired, um, I went back to school and started working on my counseling degree. Mm -hmm. And um, after I got my counseling degree, I went on and got my doctorate and completed that program in 2008. And... um, When I was working on my master's, I did my practicum at an intensive outpatient program for clients with addictions. Okay. And I did my internship at the county jail here. And I also did part of my internship at the pre-release center here, which is where you complete the last six months to 12 months of your sentence. And so that's where I really started my work with clients with addictions during my practicum and internship. So you were, you were working quite a bit with offenders. Yes, I was. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty long stretch from library science to working with offenders, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I love that. I haven't, you know, I mean, I, I have contact with lots of lots of social service people, and that's a story that I that that's one that I hadn't heard. But that's a good one. That's a good one for sure. Where did you get your doctorate? Um, American School of Professional Psychology at Argosy University. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and and now um, you're in Montgomery County. Is that right? That's right. Silver Spring, Maryland, is in Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, let's. You, you have a private practice, and you also uh, work for the county. Is that right? Yes, I have a private practice. It's a small private practice, and then I have a contract with the county. That's the biggest part of of what I do. So, I work with clients that have mental illness, primarily mood disorders. Um, anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, and depression. And then I work with um, the the clients from that I receive from the county, and they have um, alcohol and other substance abuse issues. 
Okay. The, most of the clients I work with are between, um, well, they're between the ages of 19 and 65, and most of them are between 19 and 25. And that's pretty, is that pretty predictable age, age range-wise for the 18 to 25 or 19 to 25 to be the substance, the bulk of the substance abuse population? But I think, I think it is. Yeah. I, I'm, that would be, that would be my experience here, you know, from our end. Um, so tell me what kind of substance abuse clients that do you see? I mean, what are, what are, you know, we talked a little bit about this last night. I know you mentioned a lot of them are marijuana-related cases. Yes. What else do you see? Um, heroin, alcohol, crack, cocaine, um, prescription medications, PCP. Hmm, okay. And these are all, so these folks are all, uh, are these court-ordered to treatment? Yes. Mm -hmm. Most of my clients are court-ordered into treatment. Some come voluntarily. But most of them are are court ordered. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you do groups, or do you see them individually, or both, or how do you? Work? I do both. Yeah, I do both, groups and individual. Okay. And when you do, so tell me a little bit about your about your group work process. What's that What's that like? I know you mentioned you do uh, level one work. Right. These are probably uh, offenders, but non addicts mostly. Yes, that's correct. Okay. What, what kind of stuff do you do? Is it educational or is it? It's, it's psychoeducational. So we do some education. Um, and then we, we do a lot of it. It's, it's CBT focused. Okay. So we always have an, an exercise that we use with the clients because we, we find that that keeps them focused. I, I would see that would be a good, that would be a good thing. Say, say just a little bit about what CBT is, so for who are listening who might not know. Of the cognitive behavioral therapy approach where we try to get them to, um, to change their thoughts. Mm -hmm. So we try to work with them. A lot of them have uh, very negative thinking patterns, and so we try to work with them to convert or change that negative thought into a positive thought. Okay. And we, we try to get them to focus on um, changing behaviors and people, places, and things, and we try to get them to look at the world a little bit differently. So we, we've used um, Tai Chi with our clients. We've used meditation with our clients. We have a Buddhist singing bowl that we use with them. We've done some um, walking Tai Chi and walking meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we also um, do exercises to help them look at their um, life skills or build coping skills and build life skills. Do you have some, do you have some experience yourself with uh, Buddhist tradition? I went to a local Buddhist temple here mm -hmm. and studied meditation for a year with them. So that's where I learned um, city meditation and walking meditation. Well, that's great because you you have some experience of your own to bring to the group then. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's good. That's good to know. So um, and then, but there are, uh, as I understand it, there's two other levels of of, of uh, uh, groups or treatment going on at the same time, or these these are the more severe cases or. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, I don't work with the more severe cases, but I do give re, uh, referrals so that the clients, if they need a higher level of care, pretty much if they're relapsing, they, they can't um, maintain their sobriety, then um, I refer them to a higher level of care. Mm -hmm. And I refer them to um, an intensive outpatient program where they would have to go for uh, four days a week more than nine hours of treatment, mm -hmm. or an inpatient program where they are probably are going to be there for 28 days. If they need detox, they would get three days of detox, and then they would get 25 days of treatment. I got you. And are most of these people, uh, are, are, are some of them or most of them, or I guess what percentage of them are indigent or homeless? Um, most of them. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah, a majority, a vast majority of them. How is that working with people that are um, poor and uh, you know not uh, don't have the, don't have financial resources? Have you because you work in a private practice where I'm sure you're working with people that do have resources? Yes. Mm -hmm. what do you, what's the difference? Well, I think the the primary difference is the resistance. Um, and this has nothing to do with the poverty. They just don't believe that they need to be in, in, in treatment. But if you take the resistance away, there, there really isn't that much difference because um, I just see a person that, that needs help. Mm -hmm. I, I see a person that finds it very difficult to believe that they have a mental illness and an addiction because some of my clients are co-occurring. Mm -hmm. Or have, I see people that are just in denial about um, having an addiction and, um, you know, they're just in denial that, yes, I have blackouts and, and I drink a lot, but I can get it under control. You know, I, I, I don't really need to be here. I can control it myself. And I hear that from clients that um, have six-figure salaries or, uh, I mean, you know, have like um, – a lot of money or clients that have no money. So I take it then that, that alcoholism is an equal opportunity disease. Yes. Yeah. And so is cocaine. And so so is any of it, right. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, heroin, yeah. Or, or, mental Ill, or mental illness, I guess. Huh? Or mental illness, yes. Which kind of is a, is a, good, uh, is a good segue into my next uh, question. Which is really, I mean, I, I know I'm asking for an opinion or your opinion about something that you maybe you have some experience with, but we've talked about how you, you've been to India to see what they do there. And mm -hmm. I just wondered, looking at the way other, what you know about the way other countries do treatment, what do you think, or how would you rate how we do uh, substance abuse treatment here in the U.S.? I, I think it, it pro it's probably going to vary from state to state, mm -hmm. and, and I think there, there are going to be different levels of resources available from state to state. Mm -hmm. And um, when I did my doctoral research, um, my, um, the topic of the thesis was on registered nurses' perceptions of what influences the treatment of psychiatric patients in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. 
and I did that, um, the study, I interviewed nurses in New Jersey, North Carolina, and Maryland. I, I did one in Pennsylvania, but she didn't want to be in the study. And, and what I found was that in the more rural communities, and, and it's also the, the same here in Maryland, you, you really don't have the availability of staff to work with the clients, like to recognize um, mental illness or substance abuse in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. And so you, they're probably in those rural communities, um, a very little um, opportunity to get placed into a um, psychiatric facility or into a um, uh, inpatient psychiatric um, um, substance abuse treatment facility because they they don't have that there. They don't have maybe they don't have that level of service there. So sometimes people have to travel a long distance to get the services that they need or. In, in other instances, they had the clinician travel around to more than one um, hospital. In the, in the rural areas, yeah. Do you think that, so in the rural areas of this country, it's more similar to what you find in other countries? Well, I, I think in terms of um, the um, not having the, the staff available, I think that's a similarity, mm -hmm. but I think we probably have um, better, well, more access to treatment here than in, in other, like in India, for example, they just didn't have the trained staff. Mm -hmm. They just and they, don't exist. They just don't exist. And so they had um, hospitals in major metropolitan areas, but in the rural areas, they just didn't exist at all. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to, to train paraprofessionals to go out into the community and in some instances knocking door, uh, going to the door to give treatment for addictions. Um, because of the stigma and because um, people just weren't any, in any condition to go out and get the treatment. I see. You told me, um, you told me a story uh, when, I, when I, was, I was asking you about the conditions in India. Uh, and I want to, well, yeah, I'll ask you this first and then I'm going to back into another question. But you told me a story in, in order to help me understand what, what an inpatient setting might look like in India, and you told me about a place in, uh, I think, I believe it was Pennsylvania called Byberry. Can you tell me that story? Yes. Um, Byberry, for me, every time I think about Byberry, I think about deinstitutionalization in the United States. It was one of those very large mental health um, Asylums, that's what they were called. They were called mental health asylums. And this one was right outside of Philadelphia. I think every state had one or more than one of them. Yeah. And they're huge facilities and um, they people would do farming and um, different things at these different facilities. But the, the treatment wasn't, wasn't good at all. And so 
World War during World War II, the Byberry was opened in 1907, and then in the 1940s, it became part of the um, Pennsylvania health or hospital system. And so during World War II, um, the conscientious objectors were placed in these different asylums in, in different states. And there, there are lots of Quakers in um, Philadelphia because it was, you know, it was founded by William Penn. He's a Quaker. Yeah. And um, this hospital is right outside of Philadelphia. So um, when they got to the hospital and they and they saw the conditions, they were just appalled by the conditions. And so one of the Quakers, his name was Charlie Lord, he smuggled in a camera and he took some pictures and then um, he started showing these pictures to different officials because he was trying to get changes made in the state, in that hospital. And so eventually there was an investigation, and Life magazine went in. They used his pictures. I don't know if they took additional pictures. But if you Google Byberry Hospital, you'll see a lot of information and pictures of how um, patients were treated. And your, your perception was that the, the conditions at Byberry at that time were similar to what you saw when you, when you went to India? Well, when I went to India, I went to the Institute of Human Behavior and Allied Sciences mm-hmm. in, in Delhi. Yes. And they had a facility that, uh, well, they had this the facility. The facility was, was, was really pretty well run and pretty well managed, but they had kept the part, like the old part where they used to house um, their patients Yes. During the yes. uh, early 1900s, and it was very similar. I see. It, so the old yeah, part, yeah. Yes, it just re- and it was kind of like a museum part. They would give you a tour of it. So you could see you could see their progress then. Yes, I could see their progress. So, and so, so the question. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say at that particular um, facility, they they did have an addictions um, program. They had 20 of the 260 beds at that hospital was reserved for people with addictions. Okay. And then they had an addiction specialty program where people came um, two times a week. I think it was Monday and Wednesday for um, groups like AA and NA and support groups, people with addictions. So that's interesting. So they they do have support groups there. Um, the question I wanted to back into here was, so we're talking about you, uh, you know, going to India, and we're talking in particular here about this facility in uh, Delhi. But what uh, what took you to India? What 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 made you want to go there, and how did you get there, and what, what was that process? Well, there's a, a group that I had traveled to China with. And it's called People to People Ambassador Program. And and what they do, they have educational um, kind of like exchange programs where they take professionals from the United States to different countries. And there was a, well, I looked at their website, there was a program for mental health. Mm -hmm. 
and it was psychiatrists. And at first I thought, well, you know, I'm not really a psychiatrist. I don't know if I would feel comfortable around them. I'm not a medical doctor. But then I decided I really wanted to, to go and learn about mental health and addictions in India. I had read a lot about um, how they use meditation um, with people with mental illness there and that, that whole mind-body connection. And I wanted to learn about that. So I decided to to sign up for it, and they do they do very short trips because they say that professionals don't have a lot of time to take away from work. But what I like about it is that they do um, sightseeing, and you go to lots of um, like facilities and have meetings with other professionals. So that's what you got to do. Do you remember? And I'm sure you do. What it was like for you when you got off the airplane? Did you get off the airplane in Delhi? Yes. Yeah, what was that like for you when you stepped off the airplane? For me, it, it, it wasn't, it was fine. Well, first of all, it was really late, late, late at night. Mm -hmm. But when we went to Old Delhi, uh, everybody else on the trip, they were kind of like in culture shock because you have all of these people, um, these real short, um, like very, very narrow streets, and it's just like, Every, everywhere you look, there's nothing but people, and people look very different. They're dressed differently, and um, you don't know the language. But I had lived in the Middle East when, when I was married for three years, and that's what it was like when I went shopping. Okay, in, so you weren't that shocked. No, I wasn't that shocked. <laughs> Where did you live in the Middle East? In Jeddah. Oh, okay. Okay, so you had a little experience with that. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's something. Um, what cities did you visit in India? Uh, I went to uh, Jaipur. I'm going to turn my cell phone off. I'm sorry. I went to Jaipur and I went to um, Agra and Delhi. Okay. And can you can you give us a geographical uh, like where in the where in the country those those cities are, north to south, for instance? They're north. They're all northern cities? They're, they're all northern cities. Okay. And are they all relatively modern cities? Yes. They're, they're all they're, they're, they're modern cities. Okay. So you talked a little bit earlier about the stigma of uh, what, what, you know, what the judgment level was like towards people with mental illness and substance abuse um, in India. What, what, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, at one of the hospitals, they told us that some people don't want to go to the hospital or to a clinic or receive services because of the stigma, because everybody would know. You know, they're, 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 uh, they live in these rural communities and everybody knows everybody. And so if, a, if there's a clinic and you go, everybody's going to know why you're there. And that's why they're, they're, there's, um, they're moving towards um, going to in-home counseling for people because then people wouldn't know what services you're getting. They also said, one of the doctors also said that um, a lot of people believe in traditional medicine, and so they are um, moving towards they're moving towards um sorry about that okay. they 
they they're moving towards um i can't remember what i was going to say now more they're moving towards uh more in-home counseling yeah. or people going to the rural areas rather than the rural areas right Right, they're moving towards more in-home counseling because then you wouldn't know what service they, they are receiving. Now, a lot of people still go to the traditional healers. Okay, a lot of people still go to the traditional healers, okay. and they said that unfortunately sometimes they would hit them on the head with something to try to not, to try to, to knock the mental illness out. Um, they also use herbs and um, other potions and things to help people. And there, there are some traditional healers that are now telling people to go to the mental health clinic. Okay, and so do you think that there's do you think that there's any uh, any of the traditional healers that are in any way helpful? Yes, I think traditional healers are always helpful because people believe in them. Mm-hmm. And I think that the remedies that they've been using, they've been using for years. Some of them might be harmful, but I think there there's some that aren't harmful. I know that um, when I worked in, I did some work on um, the, HIV, the U.S. government's HIV-AIDS program, mm-hmm. And um, they, one of the things they did in Brazil, this was years ago, they would take the condoms to the traditional healers and they would bless the condoms. They also did that in Africa and that got people to use the condoms. Mm -hmm. So I think there's so many people that believe in the traditional healers and that when you train the traditional healers to recognize certain symptoms of addiction or mental illness that they can't um, do anything to relieve those symptoms, then they are now telling those people to go to the mental health clinic. So it's traditional medicine or traditional healing working in in cooperation with, rather yeah. than as opposed to. Do you? Th- what is the attitude uh, like? What when you, we talk about stigma? What would it be? What would people think uh, if somebody were getting help for a mental illness? What would the what would the stigma be uh, that they were weak or that they were? What would it be? Well, they didn't go in, into specifics of of what the stigma would actually be, mm-hmm. but um, it it was kind of like obvious that they would be perceived. People would be perceived as being different. Okay. And they also talked about um, there was legal complications because if your family could prove that you were mentally ill, then um, they could take you to court and you could lose everything, your house, your inheritance, you could lose everything if the court system decided that you were mentally ill. And for some people, they they didn't want to lose everything. So that makes sense. And in a in a society where the the structure is not like our structure, the, right. those kinds of things could be a lot more important. Right. I wonder what uh, I wonder what an effective. And I don't know if you can answer this, but the thought that I have in my mind is, I wonder what the attitude or 
I wonder what a traditional healer, how, I wonder what they see when they, when we see somebody who's mentally ill, mm-hmm. what do they see? I mean, mental illness is a relatively, I think probably a relatively new concept in, in, in that culture. So I wonder what they see. Yeah, that that part I, I don't I don't know. I'd have to ask. I'd probably have to ask a, a traditional Indian healer. You'd have to ask a traditional Indian healer. <laughs> In your English, sorry. I mean, you're American, so that's not going to work. Okay, that's right. Just a, so just a thought. Anyway, um, I, okay. So let me let me ask you another uh, another question. Um, is there in in the in the treatment that you saw in India is that 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 is being currently provided through the clinics is is there a cultural uh, is it culturally different than what we would do? Yes, um, one of the things that that was was um, noticeable was that the person that went to the hospital, the whole family went to the hospital, mm-hmm. and and so. Um, it's great to have that kind of support from your family, but then it was very difficult to discuss the um, illness with a family member because of what we would consider to be HIPAA requirements. And so, yeah. A room full of people. Exactly. So they, they said that they tried to protect um, the the client, but sometimes the family members would would you know pull the doctor aside and and want to discuss the case, and so there was a lot of that where you weren't just consulting with the the person with the illness, you were consulting with the whole family. How did you how did how did they handle that? I mean, was that just a given that that was probably going to happen? So you just went with it, or yeah. Pretty much, because they even um, they stay at the hospital and they they sleep in the room. At least one person, maybe not the whole family, but at least one person. And then they they would also become like that palliative care. You know, they gave the care to the person in the hospital too. So they they were very much involved with the treatment. What did you think about that? Well, I, you know, I, I thought that from a cultural perspective that um, that's probably just the way it is. I mean, I could see where the, the um, sometimes I'll have uh, see a family and one member of the family just wants to talk and talk and talk and not, you know, I really can't hear from the client. And even if I say, well, you know, do you want to just give me a couple of minutes to talk together? They're so intimidated, you know, sometimes they'll say no. And you just get that family member's perspective. So it's hard to sort out what's actually happening with the client. It, it takes longer. Yeah, yeah, I can see where it would. And it, it also, it seems like there's a there's a uh, maybe a level of uh, nurturing from the family there culturally that maybe we don't we don't have as much of here, or we just mm-hmm. understand it. When we take somebody to the hospital, we expect that the hospital is going to take care of them. Right. Where that's that's not the apparently that's not always the expectation there. Well, you know, they just may not know what to expect, but they're not going anywhere. 
That's pretty good. Uh, That's the question I got. Okay. So um, let me ask you another one. Um, Did you find that there was a spiritual component to the treatment that that we don't we don't find here, or is there is is yeah? Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I, I, I just got the sense that there was because they talked about all these different religions that they have in, in India and, and how tolerant they are of all these different religions that they have there. And so even in shops, you would see, like, these gods that people would pay respect to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I did notice that there there was a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Like and, like the spiritual spirituality is kind of a little bit more embedded in the culture maybe than it is here. Is that yes. a fair mm-hmm. way to say it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's, if it's embedded in the culture, it's going to be embedded in the treatment. We would right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when when we are talking about substance abuse in the U.S., we've talked about the the substances that you've seen in, in, and you've treated here in the U.S. What what were they what what were they primarily treating there in india well it, it was alcohol and it was um heroin and um marijuana okay those were the three that i remember now the um clinic that that i visited that 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 one really that that first one that we went to the um, Institute of Human Behavioral and Allied Sciences, yes. that was really the only one that talked about its addictions program. But and and they and I asked them about um, medication and they they did give out Suboxone. Oh, they did for the they, opiate addiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they said that. The, most of the, the the patients that come in, they are treated on an outpatient basis. And at that particular facility, there were about 950 people that went to that hospital a day, wow. which, which is a lot of people. So they, um, and I think there may have been like 250 new patients within that 950 number. Per and day. so per day, mm-hmm. and so they said that um, most of them come in, they get the treatment, and then they go back out to their community. Now, within the community, they have I I I, I don't know if they're called pharmacies, but they take their prescription back out to the community, and then. Um, they get their medications there because there's no clinic and there's no hospital there. So they so they get them. They don't do not get them in the community that they go back to. They get they them. do the prescriptions. Yes. I see. But no follow up. Okay. Treatment. Yeah. No follow up. So so 950 people a day, 250 of them new patients. So, and how how many doctors? Oh, there weren't many doctors at all. Maybe three or four. Okay, so yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty good sized caseload. That would yeah. probably make most American doctors uh, faint right on the spot. Just yes, just to hear, <laughs> just to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. 
Do they have, so you didn't see, there's not inpatient treatment for addiction anywhere you really saw. Well, yes, they had the 20 beds. Oh, they did. That was inpatient yeah. for substance abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They had 20 of the um, 260 beds where that was for inpatient treatment. Okay. And I wonder, I mean, did you get a sense of how they, how they decided who, who would require inpatient and who did not? No, I didn't. Um, no, they didn't really, they didn't really go over that a lot. It was like, they were kind of vague about it. Mm-hmm. And um, in reading about it, because I had read about it, I knew that they did have a, a very large program um, in India, although it was a new program in India. And um, they, um, it's a community-based treatment program where they have um, a clinic and they give out methadone. And I know that it's all new. I see. They, they do, and they, they had one, um, it's called the National Drug Dependence Treatment Center, mm-hmm. and they had like a clinic in New Delhi and um, maybe three or four other places in India where they, they do methadone treatment, and, and they do detox, um, outpatient detox, mm-hmm. and they did some inpatient detox, but so I did know that it existed but not at the facilities where we went. And, and I know we had talked about, uh, you, you mentioned the word follow-up, and we had talked about, we had talked about follow-up, because I know that was an, inter, uh, 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 an interest of yours. And mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it would be very easy for there to be follow-up in this, in this setup. No, it doesn't because 950 a day. Let's let's just say round up to a thousand a day. That's seven thousand. If they well, that, well five thousand because they would be closed on Saturday and Sunday. So when would you have time to to do a follow up? On five thousand people. Yes. Yeah, and and it sounds like they do have some support groups, but not uh, not a big system. In this country, there's you know there's thousands of of uh, 12-step groups and, and other kinds of support groups for addictions and mental health all over yeah. the country. But there, it doesn't sound like it's, they're very prevalent. Right. And, and it could have been the, the people that we were interviewing. Mm-hmm. But even um, from what I've read about um, the other, treat, uh, other drug treatment in India, it, it's it's, it's there, but I, I wasn't sure how big it was. Now, they do have some very, very large hospital um, that was primarily for, you know, like um, uh, physical problems and maybe some mental health problems, uh, maybe some addictions, but um, I re- just re- wasn't really sure how big their, um, it, let's call it, national substance abuse program was. And I, I and I wonder, you know, I mean, we're, you know, I'm a, I'm a substance abuse treatment professional, so I understand the concept that that uh, you know addiction is a disease, and I and we've also we've already talked about the fact that it doesn't discriminate, uh, you know, uh, as far as socioeconomic uh, uh, class, you know, class is concerned, and I don't suspect that it discriminates. Uh, based on race or religion either. So right. I guess I'm wondering, you know, if there's just as many 
alcoholics and addicts in India as there are in the U.S. And they have, I don't know what the population of India is, but it's considerably, Very high. Yeah, considerably bigger than, than the U.S. That's yes. a lot of people, that's a lot of suffering people. That's that's a lot of suffering. Yeah, I agree. That's a lot of suffering people. And and the concern I had was that if you were um, getting any sort of a psychotropic medication, yeah. uh, you know, because you go there, they they give you the treatment, you, it, and it's very short term, and then you go back home, and they have that pharmacy back there. You know, I I just wonder if. Um, if you have all of these people that are now taking these psychotropic medications that they get when they make that long trip into the major city to get their help, and like what's happening out in the um, rural areas, or what what could possibly happen with all of these people now that are going to be taking these these medications? Yeah, with with what would appear to be very limited. Um very limited supervision and what make what it makes me wonder is I mean I know how it works here I know mm -hmm. how I know how you would you would want to stay right on top of a person with an addictions problem especially if they were using medication yes but I, what I don't know is is the thinking the same in in India as it is here is there uh, is there a diff do they view you know is their culture such that they view uh you know we we kid around that um you know how do you know when an addict is lying you know when they open their yeah. mouth <laughs> yeah so yeah. does that apply in, in india or i don't know and i i really wonder about that yeah i i i don't know i got the impression that um they don't have a lot of resources and that could be part of it, mm -hmm. that they just don't have the re The government, for whatever reason, um, hasn't put a lot of resources towards it. And it could be that they don't have the resources to put towards it. Because every, every time I kept asking about follow-up, the guy said, you know, we just have too many people. Yeah, which may just be, you know, the simplest answer and the most, most truthful answer that he can give. Yeah. Well, let me let me just ask you this: um, Do you think there's anything? That, maybe, maybe this is a strange question, but do you think there's anything that the Indians, in any way, is the Indian system? Do they do anything better than we do? Um, I I can't think of anything that they would do better. I, I did notice that um, a lot of the doctors, the psychiatrists, were, were trained in, in England or Britain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they um, pretty much use the same type of medicine protocol that we would use here. Okay. So, I mean, uh, one hospital was uh, a very large new hospital, a beautiful facility, and they, uh, if you had the very limited income, then you wouldn't pay at all, or if they have a, they always have a sliding scale fee. Mm -hmm. So that makes treatment affordable for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. So that might make, that might be one thing. Their system allows, allows, yeah. uh, more people with, with less resources to have treatment. You know, and yeah. I, do, I do know about the British, a little bit about the British system, and they, 
their philosophy is a little bit more geared towards harm reduction, I think, than in the U.S. Uh -huh. So I, that, I assume, would be reflected in the Indian system? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, um, we're probably pretty close to being out of time, and I want to just ask you if there's any other things that uh, you, would like to, you would like to say in closing, any other thoughts that you have about uh, uh, your experiences in India and the things that you've done and seen? No, I, you know, I, it was just very um, interesting to go and, and see the um, facilities and see the people and um, actually take a tour and um, walk in the, uh, I guess you'd call it the hospital wing or the hospital unit where the, where the patients actually were. And so, you know, I got to see everything, and you don't really get to see that. Um, so for me, it was really worth it, even though it was a short trip. Mm -hmm. I think it was such a very rich educational and cultural experience to kind of like see behind the walls of what actually happens in a mental health facility and to talk to a psychiatrist about addictions and then to actually go into the cafeteria on the tour and see some of the clients that were there uh, for addictions treatment and look at that 20 bed wing. Mm -hmm. Um, they they had a mother and child unit, and to actually take a look at that, and I noticed that they had lots and lots of caretakers available um, within the facility. So that was just all a very very positive, interesting experience for me. You got a you got a first hand. You really got a first hand look at it. Um, I guess yeah. one last question before we close, and that would be, do you think your experiences? Uh, in seeing the Indian system will change or has changed the way you do what you do here in the U.S.? Well, I, I, I need to do more with meditation. Um, they did give us a class on meditation there where we were learning to connect the mind and the body. I'd like to get more training in that area and incorporate that more into what I do with the clients. So you were you were inspired to to go a little further with that. That's that's great. I think that's a great that's a great outcome for you. Uh, yeah. I, I we're about out of time, so I I do want to thank you for coming on tonight, uh, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Nyang. Uh, join us tonight uh, talking about her experiences with treatment. Uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment in India. So thank you for uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, Elizabeth. Good evening. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you to our guest tonight, Dr. Elizabeth Nyang, and thank you to all our listeners and studio audience for making us a successful little underground support source for the recovering community. We will email our reminders for next week's show, and as always, try to look at recovery from a wide and open perspective. Remember to check recoveryinternetradio.com for all our archive shows and to sign up for our email reminder list. Remember, too, that we want to hear from you so we know where our listeners are. Contact us via recoveryinternetradio.com or on Twitter at Rick Atwater. And as always, live today, love yourself and your neighbor, and together we'll trudge the happy road to destiny. We hope you enjoyed the show. See you at 7 p.m. next Sunday night.